Welcome to this week's episode of Long Story Short, the global development news show. I'm Kate Midden. Roughly 4,000 people are making their way through Mexico from Central America in hopes of reaching the U.S. border in what has been coined a migrant caravan. In response, U.S. President Donald Trump has indicated he may be cutting foreign aid to Central America. Today I'm joined by Teresa Welsh, who's just returned from the region and has a depth of insight into this area. Teresa, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Kate. I'm really happy to be here. So I want to start by just giving a brief overview of this quote-unquote caravan and how it came to be. So essentially, this is a group of people um, that originated in Honduras, um, which, like its uh, partner countries in the Northern Triangle of Guatemala and El Salvador, traditionally has struggled with um, lots of crime, widespread gang violence, um, little access to economic opportunities. So we have lots of migrants making their way traditionally from these countries. And basically, in Honduras, a group started organizing um, organically through social media. Facebook, WhatsApp groups, and basically deciding essentially to leave en masse. And this is only about the second time we've seen this phenomenon. It's very new. Migrants traditionally made their way north by hiring a coyote, a coyote, who basically they pay to smuggle them north and they get three chances. And they would normally link up with people en route. But this is the first time that they're really leaving as a group together. Because usually when you say it'd be people who are just concerned about getting their family unit over the border. Exactly. So you'd pay a coyote, you know, for yourself or maybe for you and your wife and your kid or whatever um, to get over the border. And so... In Mexico, traditionally, these groups of people that were being smuggled together sort of conglomerated. But this is the first time that they're actually leaving together. And they're doing it because of safety in numbers. Basically, the route is extremely dangerous. Um, people who are alone or in small groups um, are basically subjected to robbery, sexual assault, extortion, human trafficking, and traveling all together um, provides a bit of safety. So this has been an explosive story in the U.S. because despite this caravan kind of coming together organically, it's really been conflated with immigration politics in the U.S. And it feels like you know, the migrant caravan has been kind of on every TV station for the past week or so. Uh, can you talk about the political response from the U.S.? Yeah, so this is happening during a very interesting moment here in the U.S. We have our midterm election uh, less than a week out now. And uh, immigration has always been uh, one of the issues that President Donald Trump uh, likes to talk about. And it does rev up his base. And it was one of his uh, key issues that helped him win in 2016. And so he has uh, really been talking about this a lot in the last couple of weeks as we look forward to our election in hopes that it is really going to motivate um, his Republican base to get out to the polls. Uh, and so, you know, this caravan currently is um, about a thousand miles away from the Mexican border. Um, there's essentially no chance that it is going to cross the border en masse. And most of these people who are a part of it has stated their desire to request asylum in the United States, which is allowed under international law. So people have said they intend to present themselves at the border to U.S. authorities requesting asylum and then let cases proceed from there. So this is not a situation where you have thousands of people that are looking to just rush over the border. Um, it's people who are actually seeking a legal pathway to become a citizen in the U.S. in hopes of 
fleeing their country of origin. Essentially. And, you know, you have in this group people that are fleeing uh, direct threats against their lives, against their families' lives, um, you know, from gangs, from authorities themselves. Um, A lot of these, um, you know, people are living in really precarious situations and frequently something will happen to someone where they decide they have to leave immediately. And so there's really not time to make other plans. There's been a lot of political rhetoric in the U.S. that these are people who are coming over to steal jobs. You know, this is just a big kind of political talking point that we've heard. Um, I saw some research from Michael Clemens and Kate Goff at the Center for Global Development that looked at the motivations in Central America of people to leave. And it showed that, you know, yes, economic opportunities are a piece of it, but just as equatable is violence. Exactly. And it actually can be really difficult to sort of point to one issue because so many of the things are connected. You know, people can, um, you know, lose a job and have to move to a different part of their country that, you know, maybe that's a really violent area and there's, you know, gang violence there. And so, you know, a lot of the issues can sort of come together. It can be difficult to, you know, say definitively this is the one reason a person left. But a lot of people, you know, have very um, credible threats on their lives and, um, you know, they intend to present themselves to U.S. authorities and make their case. And, you know, of course, that process is quite complicated and lengthy as there's a significant backlog in U.S. courts right now. Yeah, I think it's um, it's easy when you're hearing a lot of stories and a lot of a lot of rhetoric, you know, even calling it a migrant crisis, you know, is something we've heard about a long for a long time at the border. Um, you know, it's either easy to kind of other migrants, you know, in your head when you're just hearing that kind of on the news or in casual conversation every day. But what we're really talking about are people who are fleeing extraordinarily terrible situations and are just trying to protect themselves and their families. Like thinking about what would it actually take for someone to take this extraordinarily dangerous journey in a group of thousands of people, and that is the safer option. And I think that's a difficulty that a lot of groups that are working with these people face, sort of in explaining, you know, why they're doing what they're doing, groups that are on the ground, or, you know, people that are advocates for immigrants here in the United States and the border region, um, and, you know, why those people essentially are making the choices that they've made and why they deserve compassion and, you know, not essentially to be used as a political pawn. So the number of people who have joined kind of ebbed and flowed from this caravan has fluctuated by, you know, a couple thousand since we first heard about this a week or two ago. What has the humanitarian response to the caravan itself looked like so far? So groups have been sending, um, you know, people on the ground sort of strengthening their response in terms of just the purely humanitarian front um, to assess needs and get people what they needed. And it's actually been interesting as the caravan has crossed through Mexico. So it originated in Honduras and Honduras, El Salvador and Guatemala have visa-free travel. So, you know, they could move into Guatemala 
Guatemala with, you know, no repercussions. They were all legally allowed to be there if they're residents of Honduras. Um, but moving into Mexico, that changes. Um, you know, Hondurans can't automatically just be in Mexico. And there also has been sort of varying responses from just the Mexican public, um, which, you know, of course, Mexico also has a tradition of sending migrants to the U.S. Um, for, you know, similar reasons, both economic and violence related. And so, you know, you have some people that are reacting with compassion and helping migrants and, you know, passing out water or snacks, um, and then other people who are upset that, you know, these people are coming and some of the same fears, honestly, um, that people are there to steal jobs. And so, you know, the U.S. administration has been trying to encourage the Mexican government to, um, you know, allow the people to stay in Mexico so they don't reach the U.S. border, but the Mexican government has some of these same issues as well. So that's kind of the, the purely humanitarian side, you know, really responding in this moment. But President Trump tweeted, I quote, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador were not able to do the job of stopping people from leaving their country and coming illegally to the U.S. We will now begin cutting off or substantially reducing the massive foreign aid routinely given to them, unquote. Uh, that seems problematic on a number of fronts. Um, you know, the research that I referenced earlier by Michael Clemens over at CGD suggested that, you know, cutting off aid would actually do the opposite. It would send more people over the border. What What is your reaction to that, given the reporting that you have done on this topic? Well, it's essentially counterproductive. All of the U.S. money we're spending in Central America, particularly in the Northern Triangle, is focused at reducing root causes for migration. So we are focused on increasing educational opportunities, um, increasing employment opportunities, um, strengthening um, civil society, uh, strengthening institutions, which have traditionally been weak in uh, the Northern Triangle. And so the U.S. is basically spending this aid that President Trump referenced to stem migration and flow like we've seen with this caravan. So it's a little bit self-defeating to threaten to cut off that aid to stop migration uh, because the Honduran government hasn't stopped the migration. Right. So we are we're effectively giving aid to support the effort to stop violence and create more jobs. And without that, the the you know, in higher violence and fewer jobs are just going to send more people. Exactly. And I actually just returned from a trip to El Salvador and had a chance to visit a couple of programs that are funded by USAID in El Salvador. And they're all focused on, um, you know, essentially improving communities, strengthening community ties, encouraging people who have come back to reintegrate into the community and um, creating conditions so that people who have never left feel no need to do so. What would you say to critics who might say, okay, well, we have been giving this aid and now we have this caravan that it doesn't seem like it's working? 
So that's a great question, and I think it is something people point to a lot. But basically, with problems like this, you have to be willing to play the long game. And the US has to be able to invest without recognizing that in a year, two years, even five years, they're not going to see immediate results. And there have been some results seen in the region. But you know, a lot of these problems have become so endemic in these societies that it really is going to take major change to stop violence. Something we should probably reflect on, which you and I have talked about um, on this show before, is the the influx of children at the border a couple years ago. That was something that was all over the news in the same way it is now. And under the Obama administration, there was an effort to you know, stem that migration of these kids, these unaccompanied minors that were coming over the border, um, obviously without any parents or guardians. So when you're talking about, you know, looking at the long game, is that kind of the the foreign aid response that you're referring to, the kind of alliance for prosperity um, implementation of these programs? Exactly. So the Alliance for Prosperity was developed um, by the Obama administration in coordination with the three Northern Triangle governments in response to the unaccompanied minor crisis. And um, a key part of that is that the three Northern Triangle governments really are partners in this plan. And so the U.S. is obviously giving money towards the Alliance for Prosperity, but it also requires the three countries themselves, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, to also be dedicating funds towards improving a lot of the things that are, you know, causing migration. And so, um, you know, the U.S. is really working in partnership with those governments and isn't just, you know, throwing money at this problem. But, you know, a lot of the programs have only been in effect for several years and really need more time to play out. Do we have any indication of what President Trump means when he says that we're going to cut foreign aid? I mean, would it would it mean dissolving the Alliance for Prosperity? Would it mean just, you know, reconfiguring aid budgets? Have you heard anything about what the particulars could look like? It's really hard to say, particularly since U.S. aid is administered through so many different agencies, and. Um, you know, in Central America, that can be so many different things. But it was very interesting to be on the ground in El Salvador um, and sort of hear messaging from U.S. government officials there that were very much trying to say, we're still here, we're still with you. Um, the U.S. ambassador to El Salvador um, gave a speech, and she basically said, um, we still believe in this program. We believe in the government of El Salvador. We think you're a valid partner, and we continue to carry forward this effort, um, which is essentially the exact opposite of what President Trump has been tweeting about. So the messaging in the region to those governments from our U.S. ambassadors is quite different than what President Trump is saying. What is your read of that, of those two completely differing sentiments regarding foreign aid in light of this migrant, migrant caravan? Well, the folks you've got on the ground in country have a front row seat, right, to how these programs are actually working and the difference that it makes. And, you know, theoretically, I assume someone who's a 
career foreign uh, service officer believes in the work that the U.S. does in the diplomacy sphere and, you know, believes that the programs that the U.S. is running um, through USAID and other agencies and in partnership with other NGOs um, are making a real difference. And so I read that as sort of an attempt to reassure folks that the U.S. is not about to cut and run. We're not going to close up shop and stop funding programs that we've committed to. Um, and basically a recognition that this is a particular political moment in the U.S., this has become a very hot-button political issue. But on the ground, the folks that are actually doing this work continue to carry on. When you were having conversations with experts from these NGOs in El Salvador, were you sensing anxiety from them about President Trump's comments? Yeah, I mean, I think every time immigration becomes political like this, it gives a little bit of anxiety. And, um, you know, I think particularly with this administration, people don't quite know what is rhetoric and what's going to be acted upon. And, you know, a lot of these NGOs in the region are funded by USAID or other government agencies. And so it's hard to plan and sort of uh, carry out your programs if you think your funding might be cut. It's one thing for President Trump to tweet that he's going to cut foreign aid to Central America, but the actual budgeting process is much more bureaucratic and at least it can be a little bit more long term. I mean, it, it, is it possible for him to just cut off foreign aid tomorrow? Well, luckily, um, the U.S. budget goes through Congress, and Congress has a final say on money that the U.S. Treasury spends. And uh, U.S. Congress so far has maintained um, a solidly bipartisan support for U.S. aid funding and for funding in Central America. It seems that senators and representatives finally understand why we're spending the money that we are in the way that we are with the Alliance for Prosperity. It is aimed at root causes of migration, and they see that rescinding that funding isn't going Going to solve the problem uh, that we seem to have. It's really only going to exacerbate it. And so um, it'll be interesting, the outcome of our election next week, um, you know, just in terms of the, the makeup in the House and Senate and who ultimately will have control. But so far, it's really looked like uh, Congress believes in these programs and does not want to cut the funding. So kind of, you know, on the political front, one might argue, um, there is this effort to send 5,000 U.S. troops to the border um, in anticipation of this caravan arriving. What you have already mentioned that you found in your reporting is that the people who are in this caravan are not trying to break any laws. They are trying to have a legal pathway into the U.S. by seeking asylum where they, can, they and their families can be safe. Um, what is the anticipated outcome once this caravan does reach the border, and how does that square with this heightened military presence that is being sent there? Yeah, I think it's really important to sort of um, try to back away from some of the rhetoric that's gotten very heated here in the U.S. about this. Um, you know, I heard one news clip of a um, you know a commentator asking someone from the administration, you know, if the the troops would be authorized to shoot to kill, which is just seems very extreme in this particular situation. And you know, I think 
the president has done a good job of sort of fanning the flames and creating this image that there's literally going to be thousands of people rushing the border and that, you know, we have to stop them with the military. Um, and so, you know, like we were talking about earlier, the administrative challenges, however, are quite large in terms of actually processing these people. And um, the U.S. traditionally has... Um, you know, done an intake of asylum claims and then essentially released people into the country to await their uh, hearing. And, you know, they're not on trial, but their their case has to move its way through the courts and they have to be either approved or not for asylum. It can also vary greatly which um, area of the country you're placing your claim in. In uh, San Francisco, there's a lot higher chance that your claim is going to be approved than some other portions of the country. So that all plays into it as well. So it's really hard to say how many of these folks are actually going to reach the border and sort of what Mexico's response will be along the way and whether or not, you know, they'll take steps to, um, you know, stop people actually from moving north. What are some of the questions that you are looking into now? And what are the big kind of development angles that you're looking to tease out from this story and your reporting? So I'm really looking at a lot of these um, programs we've been talking about that the U.S. is spending money on in country. So in El Salvador, I had the opportunity to visit um, a couple of different communities that have seen really successful implementation of these prog programs locally. Um, one is in an area of El Salvador called Mexicanos, where they have essentially built um, a whole sort of recreation complex where there previously was nothing. It was a field just dirt and dust, basically, that men would play soccer on. But there was nothing formalized, and no one else really could use the space because there wasn't anything there. And uh, with funds um, from USAID in conjunction with the um, International Organization for Migration, they have built a formalized soccer field on that space. It has a track around it, there's a playground, there are picnic tables. It's really become sort of a community hub and a space where people can come. And so that is essentially both helps people who have come back and are trying to get back integrated into their community and who, you know, both the U.S. and El Salvador wants to stay in El Salvador. They don't want returnees to try to go again. Um, as well as other community members who may be thinking um, about leaving. And so really programs that are working on community cohesion. So basically USAID provides funds to build this facility and then hands management of it over to the municip municipality. So local groups really are free to use the space how they want. Uh, they've got youth sports teams that they've set up. Um, there are people that come and do aerobics there. They do health fairs there. It's really become sort of a community hub. And I met a lot of folks in you could just tell by talking to them how proud they were to have this space to be a part of something that's really improving their community. And I'm sure also, you know, on the kind of visibility front, it does good things for the brand of the U.S. in terms of giving that kind of foreign assistance in building st regional stability. Exactly. And all of these programs have little plaques up somewhere where it says where the money came from. And the USAID logo is right there. And, you know, folks that are working at facilities have the USAID logo on their polo shirt and everything. So the U.S. is certainly branding itself that way. Yeah, it is an interesting reframe in this time when foreign aid kind of looks at something to be cut or demonized, but really reframing to look at it as something to be celebrated. Exactly. And, you know, it's I definitely got that impression as well from, you know, chatting with 
with U.S. government folks that they have really solid relationships with people on the ground that they're working with. And I think that, again, sort of points to why we saw that messaging locally from, you know, the ambassador saying, like, we are still here. We're still doing this work. We believe in it. They have really, really strong ties because they locally have seen the, inf the influence that, you know, these USAID programs have had. Teresa, thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you so much for having me. Be sure to keep on top of all of the latest reporting on the Central American migrant influx caravan crisis. However, we are going to talk about it. Teresa is really looking deeply, as you can tell, into the development angle of this. You can follow her on Twitter at TMA Welsh and, of course, find all of her reporting on DevX.com. In other global development news, Three months after a breakdown of its last board meeting, the world's largest international climate fund is getting its house back in order. Last week, the UN Green Climate Fund kick-started a process to replenish its dwindling finances and approved more than a billion dollars worth of projects to help developing countries adapt to and mitigate the effects of climate change. This week, a UK aid watchdog found that the Department for International Development's work on maternal health and family planning has fallen short of expectations and that the agency may have exaggerated the number of lives it saved through its work. In last week, all eyes were on the impact investing space during the Social Capital Markets Conference in San Francisco. The amount of money invested for impact nearly doubled from 114 billion US dollars in 2016 to 228 billion at the end of 2017. And now the sector is looking at how to measure impact, create guidelines and action plans and prevent impact washing. Thank you so much for joining me this week on Long Story Short and we'll be back next week.